programming on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our members and Devour Utah, a monthly magazine devoted to covering Utah's dining and drink scene with a spotlight on cooking, local happenings, and libations. Available at newsstands or online at devourutah.com. Welcome to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. And uh, we have with us uh, Matthew Bowman. He is author of the new book, Christian, the, the Politics of a Word in America. It's out from Harvard University Press. He writes that religious diversity has long been a defining feature of the United States. But what may be even more remarkable than the sheer range of faiths is the diversity of political visions embedded in those religious traditions. Matthew Bowman delves into the ongoing struggle over the potent word Christian, not merely to settle theological disputes, but to discover its centrality in American politics. As you'll uh, find out, we'll talk about some very current topics here, along with the history. Matthew Bowman is Associate Professor of History at Henderson State University. He's author previously of The Mormon People, The Making of an American Faith, and The Urban Pulpit, New York City and the Fate of Liberal Evangelicalism. Professor Bowman, welcome to the program. Thank you. Glad to be here. We appreciate you taking the the time. Uh, so I'd like to start with the genesis of this book. has uh, has a kind of a surprising twist, and you write about this. Uh, how did this book come about? Uh, well, you know, I have been watching American politics, like most of us, for the past ten years or so. And back in 2010, um, during the rise of the Tea Party and this kind of uh, very Christian conservative movement. Um, I read a column by, of all people, uh, the vampire novelist Anne Rice. And in this column, um, Rice, who has had a very long and kind of uh, twisted uh, contentious history with Roman Catholicism, uh, Rice said that she believed Jesus Christ was her Savior. Um, she believed in his atonement. She believed in his um, status as the Son of God. However, she rejected the word Christian um, because, as Rice said, uh, I refuse to be anti-woman. I refuse, I refuse to be anti-gay. I refuse to be anti-democrat. And it was really interesting to me um, that this self-professed believer in Jesus Christ, um, nonetheless at the same time, accepted that the word Christian had been colonized and taken over um, by socially conservative politics in the United States. And, and more, as I began looking closer at this issue, I found that she was not alone. Poll after poll after poll has shown that over the past 20 or so years, Americans have come to identify the word Christian with socially conservative politics. Um, even Americans who disagree with those socially conservative politics believe that they are in some way Christian. Um, and as a historian, this seemed odd to me, because, of course, Christianity is, is 2,000 years old, and it has within its history and, and ideology and borders all sorts of very, very divergent political and social and cultural ideas. And so I thought I wanted to write a book exploring how we got to that point and looking at some of the diverse possibilities that have been offered. Um, in American Christianity about what American society and politics might be like. Um, and that um, several year long investigation is what got me uh, to writing this book. So I guess one of the impulses, one of the purposes here is to uh, take kind of the narrow 
definition that a lot have uh, have accepted now and and show no that it's a much broader history, maybe much broader than we know at the present, and broader in the history is uh, broader in the future as well. Yeah, absolutely. You know, the, the Christianity offers many, many, many possibilities, um, and certainly if we look back over its history, right, um, a thousand years ago. Popes and kings were describing Christianity as something that undergirded an absolute monarchy. Um, then we had the Protestant Reformation, we had a divergent of um, a divergence of transformations, and we've gotten to where we are now. Uh, but the arguments, I think, that we're beginning to see um, emerging, especially out of the 2016 election, about what a Christian may or may not do in the public sphere, have in some sense always been there. Um, and that's the history I want to uncover. In fact, you, I think, you begin and end the book with uh, with this investigation, right? Uh, a lot of people are scratching their heads. Why, how could in excess of 80% of evangelicals uh, support uh, President Trump, candidacy of uh, now President Trump? Sure. And, and what was interesting is, uh, of course, I conceived the book before that point. I began writing the book before that point. Uh, but uh, when that election happened, my editor called me up and said, hey, you know, you've got to say something about this because this is going to be a question a lot of people have. Um, and certainly, um, I should point out, and I think you know, this is relevant to the, the nature of the book itself, it's 80-odd uh, percent of white evangelicals. Okay, um, and that yes. kind of uh, diversity, I think, um, is something that certainly comes up in the book. Uh, but it also, I think, indicates um, how easy it is to sort of uh, identify this one particular strand of American Christianity that is you know, socially conservative, um, evangelical, white, um, Christians as representative of Christianity as a whole. This is, of course, I think something that that group has really tried. Um, that they've made a campaign to colonize the world, to take it over. And um, what has struck me about a lot of the coverage that we've seen in the past few years is how successful they have been. Now, uh, part of the heartburn, of course, with uh, people who oppose or, or scratch their heads about white evangelicals supporting uh, President Trump in such large numbers is well, President Trump's barely a Christian, right? And he, he doesn't he doesn't live the values. So how can you support him? Yeah, absolutely. And and this is certainly, I think, something that splintered even that community as well. Um, and you know, there's a, a lot of ways I think to think about the question. One of the things that makes us think about, of course, is what does it mean to be a Christian? Is a Christian somebody who should live in one way or another? Um, and you've seen. Um, a few, not all, but a few of his um, defenders say, well, Donald Trump, even though, of course, he, his personal life is hardly what most people would think a Christian should be, he has converted, he has accepted Jesus, and that, therefore, makes him a Christian. Um, others say, no, that's not right at all, right? Um, there's much more to being a Christian than that. But I think, ultimately, and this is the argument that I come to towards the end of the book. Ultimately, I think why so many of these people voted for Donald Trump is that because for them, the word Christian has become intertwined with a whole set of other ideas about what they imagine America to be, um, what its heritage is, um, what it makes it Christian, what makes it possible for Christians to live there, and those ideas are really intertwined with a notion um, I call in the book Western Civilization, um, which they identify with America's European white heritage, which they identify with democracy, um, a concept they see emerging out of that Western white European heritage, and ultimately done with individual liberty and freedom. 
So for many, many, I think, evangelicals, being Christian is really bound up with accepting all of these other things. Mm. Um, Christianity in America is enabled and defended by this Western heritage, and in turn, that Western heritage has made possible this sort of Christianity they practice in the United States. So when they look at Donald Trump, they see someone who perhaps personally doesn't behave in the ways you would expect a Christian to behave, um, who seems not entirely conversant with the Bible, for instance, but they see somebody who very much understands that kind of civilization rhetoric. Mm -hmm. um, they see someone who, is, who stands up and says, I want to close the borders. Um, they see someone who perceives um, people who don't share that white Protestant heritage as threats. And so they see in him someone who is willing to fight for the conception of Christian civilization that they have accepted. And this is, uh, this is very much bound up in culture wars, right? And, and you mentioned the immigration debates. Uh, close the borders, it's, it's not... That's not foreign to this idea of, of at least uh, some people's conceptions of, of Western, you know, Christian Western civilization. Mm -hmm. Certainly, right? And, and this is a story that goes on, um, has gone on for a long, long time, right? Back to when uh, the term Western civilization is really being generated in the 18th, 19th, and early 20th centuries, right? It is something that's very much identified with European society, and particularly with Northern European Protestants. Um, Roman Catholics for a long time were perceived as not Western, right, and, and thus a threat to democracy and a threat to freedom as American Protestants understood it. Um, so the argument's been happening for a long, long time. It's taken on particular terms, I think, in our, our particular time and place, but there's nothing new about it. I'd like to uh, return to the point you made at the beginning of, of the broadcast here, um, and and your theories as to why um, not only, uh, you, you say the conservative Christians have worked very hard to colonize the word Christian. Uh, they've been successful at that in part because some, some people with other uh, conceptions of Christianity have just ceded the field to them, have retired, uh, from, from that particular d debate. And I, I wonder, wonder why. Sure. Uh, you know, and the, part of the story I tell in the book is that uh, through the mid-20th century, um, you see many people who are identified as Christian advocating for uh, political positions um, that today we would perceive to be liberal or democratic, right, um, support of the Democratic Party. Um, particularly in the 1960s, uh, there are a lot of these groups, um, even some kind of what we might call um, politically radical evangelicals, um, who are very much pushing, pushing for um, a much more um, public economy, um, so, social welfare nets, uh, restrictions on business, all this sort of thing. Um, and some of those people are certainly still around. There is a small uh, but vibrant evangelical left in the United States today, but of course we don't think of those people when you hear a politician, for instance, call himself a Christian politician, right? These are not the people whom we're thinking of. Another thing that happens in the mid-20th century that I think contributes um, to that sort of um, what we might call historical amnesia, is that the borders of what it meant to be Christian in the United States begin to broaden. And that happened for a number of reasons. Um, one of those reasons is, is of course, the 
course, the Cold War, um, this threat of communism, which uh, for many American Christians overwhelmed all sorts of other boundaries, be they denominational or theological. And because of the Cold War, many American Christians begin to make their faith more ecumenical. Um, They begin talking about something that we call today the Judeo-Christian tradition, um, which is not a term that really exists in the 17th, 18th, 19th centuries. It's very much a term that becomes popular at precisely this moment, because these theological and uh, denominational boundaries were being lowered in order to present a united front against the Soviet Union and against communism. While that emerging ecumenism was happening as well, beginning in the 1960s, the United States starts to become a much more religiously diverse place. In 1965, um, Congress lowers um, the borders on American immigration. A big wave of particularly people from Asia begin coming to the U.S. And faiths outside that Judeo-Christian tradition start to become prominent, publicly prominent in the United States. Um, in many, many different communities for the first time. We're talking about Hinduism and Buddhism, Islam, certainly as well. And in reaction to that, a lot of these ecumenical Christians, these Christians who had begun lowering these theological uh, boundaries because of the Cold War, begin to start thinking of America as a religiously diverse place. Um, They begin thinking of religious diversity as an American value. And thus they begin to be more hesitant to call um, their politics Christian. They begin to be more hesitant to use that term in the public sphere. Now, while that's happening, there is what was at that point in the 1960s a fairly small contingent of theologically conservative Christians, both Catholics and evangelicals, who are horrified by this who think that the kind of particularity of Christianity is very important, who reject the notion um, that religious diversity is should be a public social value. And so those are the people who are willing to stay up and stand up and say, I am a Christian and this is a Christian country and it should be a Christian country. These other ecumenical Christians who are still Christian, who believe in Christian social values, um, but who are much less willing to use the term because they've embraced this notion of diversity um, and theological pluralism, thus did, in a lot of ways, give up using the term in political arguments and thus cede it to their religious right. What uh, There are some strains of thought in this intersection of uh, Christianity, the word Christianity, which you might think, you know, just religious, but obviously um, it's, it's, it's a very much loaded political word. So the intersection with politics and culture. Um, you give some, an example, a stark example, I thought, of abolitionists who are using some of these strains of thought, what, uh, what a Christian democracy means, and then Southern white supremacists who are, are using some of the mm-hmm. same, same ideas and coming to a very different conclusion. Yeah, absolutely, and I think that's a good illustration of how diverse and capacious the word is, right? How many things that can be mobilized um, to serve. Um, One of the fundamental values 
um, that most Protestants, and, and Roman Catholics too, would associate with the word Christian is this sense um, of human uniqueness, the sense that human beings are special because human beings are created by God in God's image, right? that human beings therefore have kind of a unique place on earth, different from animals, different um, from other forms of life. And that idea can be mobilized in a lot of different ways. As you point out, right, for abolitionists, um, for many civil rights advocates in the 1960s, um, someone like, for instance, a Martin Luther King, um, they would seize upon this idea and say, look, all human beings are equal. All human beings um, are the product of divine creation. And therefore, our politics should reflect that. Um, our politics should embrace this notion of equality. Now, this is an idea, as I say, that many, many, many varieties of American Christian have embraced, um, going all the way back to the 19th century. But interestingly enough, there are, of course, um, some Christians who would use the same idea um, before the Civil War, for instance. Um, there were Southern white supremacists who would use that idea um, and simply say, well, but black people aren't part of that creation. Right? White people are equal because white people are the ones with God's image. Black people are not. Um, and they would just use that same idea to justify white supremacy. During the 1960s and the Civil Rights Movement, you would see kind of the same argument happen, right? Someone like Martin Luther King would stand up and say, if America is to be a Christian society, it must embrace this notion of Christian equality. Um, but then somebody like Sam Bowers, who was a leader of the Ku Klux Klan, um, in Mississippi would say, well, but America, if America is a Christian nation, that means America is a white nation, uh, because it is the white countries of the world, it is the northern European countries of the world that fostered Christianity, um, it is only those people who are fully capable of practicing it. All right, so it, it's odd to hear, but of course uh, this term can be used on both sides of a debate so heated as that. Let's take a break. Uh, when we come back, um, I want to uh, to rip a topic from the headlines. That is, I'm I'm guessing you've been following this, um, Matthew Bowman. Speaker Ryan fires the House chaplain. There's there's an intersection of, of politics and and religion. Um, and I want to get in later in the program to talking about um, how Mormons fit in all of this. That interesting. So I thought about this um, kind of a mixture of. Of, of a lot of these ideas. Um, more following the break. Fans of Jane Austen may be surprised to learn she drew inspiration from the great economist Adam Smith. Austen brings to light those Smithian virtues and vices. The characters in her stories that follow the virtuous path are the ones that end up happily married and romanced in the end. I'm Sarah McConnell. Join me for With Good Reason. Wake up with good reason tomorrow at 4 a.m. on Utah Public Radio. American companies have submitted more than 3,500 applications to get out from under the steel and aluminum tariffs. How's that going so far? It's a pretty tedious process. You know, there's, because there's not a lot of feedback. I'm Kai Rizdal. Exemption anxiety, that... And the day's business news, the numbers from Wall Street as well, next time on Marketplace. Join us tonight at 6.30 on Utah Public Radio. 
Arts Reporting on Utah Public Radio is supported by the Office of the Executive Vice President and Provost, celebrating USU's Year of the Arts. Thanks for listening to Access Utah. We're talking today with Matthew Bowman, author most recently of Christian, the Politics of a Word in America. Matthew Bowman is Associate Professor of History at Anderson, uh, excuse me, at Henderson State University. Um, and uh, we have the conversation for another, oh, about 30 minutes. You're welcome to join this conversation at upraxcess at gmail.com. So, uh, Matthew Bowman, I made reference to this before the uh, break. Um, just very recently, there's a big kerfuffle. Uh, Speaker Paul Ryan has uh, fired the House chaplain, apparently, according to at least one version of the events, uh, because of a prayer or prayers that the chaplain, um, who I believe is Catholic, uh, said in the chamber, uh, to some views, espousing uh, economic justice, Christianity. Yeah, certainly. And, and uh, you know, if, I think mean, certainly we don't know for sure, right, why this happened. But if we take that version of the story, um, to be accurate, I think it's an interesting illustration of some of the ideas I explore in the book. Um, I have a, a full chapter on Catholic conceptions of Christianity, particularly in the great Depression and how American Catholics um, thought about how American American society should be structured, and certainly this notion of economic justice, right, is is one really deeply embedded um, in the ways Catholics think about society, right? Going back for years and years and years, Catholics have been leery of capitalism and leery of uh, industrial capitalism in particular, um, you know, to have capitalists and workers and that sort of thing. Um, Catholics have long argued for a more holistic and organic conception of society um, than capitalist theory does. Um, capitalist theory tends to uh, believe that society is formulated by, or is formed of individuals who are each struggling um, to um, advance their own um, positions. Catholics prefer to think of society as being an organic whole, um, one in which there are many, many parts, but all of which must function together. And that had led many Catholics in the 20th century, including a couple of popes who issued papal encyclicals about this, um, to advocate for um, greater care given to workers, um, for better wages, um, for um, hiring and um, practices that favor the notion of humanity over the notion of profit and things like that. And in the 1930s, during the Great Depression, you had many, many Catholics who were among the most vocal advocates for the state intervening to do more, um, for the state to kind of take up this mantle of a organic, holistic society and intervene on behalf of workers to ensure that they were cared for. Um, these ideas have been preserved. Um, the, the, actually, the, all three of the most recent popes have voiced these same sorts of opinions and have expressed some sort of suspicion of unrestrained capitalism. Um, on the other hand, though, you have, and what's interesting here is that Paul Ryan is, of course, a Catholic as well, um, but he is also, I think, very much an American Catholic, a Catholic um, who is very embedded in American conservatism and the sort of Christianity that flourishes there is a much more Protestant type of Christianity, one which emphasizes the individual. 
um, and the value of the individual. And many evangelical Protestants, many white evangelical Protestants on what we would call the religious right today, the sort of a conservative social movement, um, are very suspicious of large institutions. Um, they're very suspicious of large governments because they tend to think of these institutions as being destructive of the spiritual capacities of the individual. Um, they worry about these institutions being um, what I call in the book materialist, that is, privileging um, temporal, this-worldly values um, over spiritual values and the autonomy of the individual to do right and wrong. And so they tend to think that large government is destructive of those things, and thus um, would be really suspicious of calls for the state um, to intervene in what they as the private sphere of the economy. Yeah, it's interesting that, the, and uh, this illustrates the very points you're making in the book, right? That, that you would think a prayer would not be controversial, but <laughs> but but it apparently it was, right? Yeah. yeah, but you know, I think um, well, another point, you know, I, I think that, that I, I don't make as explicitly as I could in the book, but one that I think is very true is that. Calls to separate religion and politics are always going to fail, um, because those calls are always based upon what one thinks religion is, right, and where one would draw the lines between religion and politics. And virtually every single religious person is going to draw that line in a separate place and define what is appropriate and what is not appropriate differently. As long as you know, politics are being practiced by people who have religions, there will be religion in politics. Hmm. Um, what we see, I think, in this case, right, is a case where um, men with two different definitions of that, uh, this chaplain and, and the speaker, um, are colliding. Mm-hmm. Yeah. If you just joined us, we're talking with Matthew Bowman. Uh, the latest book is a very interesting book, Christian, The Politics of a Word in America. It's out from Harvard University Press. And uh, Matthew Bowman is Associate Professor of History at Henderson State University. Matthew Bowman, I want to get to talking a little bit about uh, the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, headquartered here in Utah. Um, and you talk about definition of a word. Mormons have uh, been very much involved or, or talked about or uh, in, in terms of who's in and who's out, who's a Christian, who's mm-hmm. not. Um, Mormons and those who follow them are very familiar with this this debate. Um, uh, you wrote a lot about uh, Mitt Romney's runs, uh, 2008, especially 2012. Uh, it it came up there, right? Yeah, it absolutely did. You know, and and I, I knew from the very beginning when I started working on this book that I wanted to close with a discussion of that 2012 election um, because it seemed to me that here in 2012 you had two candidates running for president both of whom professed to be Christian, but both of whom found a great deal of opposition to that claim by other people who also claimed to be Christian. And so it seemed a kind of perfect illustration of a lot of the conundrums and uh, the problems that come when we just try to define this word. Now, for Mormons, Mormons are often very baffled um, when evangelicals in particular, say that they are not Christian. Um, But I think this comes from them simply defining the word differently. For evangelicals, the word Christian uh, means, for the most part, someone who has had a spiritual experience with Christ, someone who has 
um, turn to Christ for their salvation, who has accepted salvation um, through a spiritual experience. While Mormons tend to define Christian as someone who follows the teachings of Christ and who does what Christ instructs. And so there's certainly a theological distinction here. Um, but it's also, as I you know, said a moment ago, there is no real possible way to separate religion and politics. So this dispute is also very much a political one. Um, and that goes back to the 19th century, right, when uh, the Mormons were first settling the state of, or what became the state of Utah, what was then the Utah Territory. Um, many Protestants, Protestant Americans, called the Mormons unchristian then, because the Mormons were setting up a theocracy, and the Mormons were setting up an economic system based on communal ownership that rejected um, the capitalist norms of the rest of American society. And for Protestants, who are very much steeped in this notion of Western civilization, in which Christianity and democracy and individual liberty all went hand in hand, they didn't see how this could be a Christian society. And indeed, you find um, in Protestant criticisms of Mormon polygamy comparisons to what they called back then the Orient, right? And they said this is a society more given um, to the Orient, to the societies of the Islamic or the Hindu world, rather than the Christian world. Uh, now, Mormons have tried very, very hard to join this broader Christian consensus in the United States, to become part of this um, broadly accepted Christian community. And for a while, that certainly worked. Um, in the mid-20th century, right, Mormons very much embraced the sort of social and cultural norms of the United States. Um, they embraced overt patriotism, um, for which there is some scriptural justification in Mormon scripture. And in the 1950s and 60s, Mormons were really celebrated as being quintessential Americans. And, and this argument about whether or not Mormons were Christian began to subside. Um, it was reinvigorated um, soon after that, though, in the 1970s and 1980s, as these conservative evangelicals who became part of the religious right um, and who led the religious right renewed attacks on Mormonism, um, finding it still very um, theologically and spiritually inappropriate. And that was really ironic, because, of course, at that same time, the Mormons, who had gained acceptance in American society because they embraced the social and political and cultural norms of mid-century America, Mormons were themselves then joining this religious right movement, um, attacking and protesting the kind of resurgent feminist movement, protesting the social changes um, the, the youth movement and the counterculture brought to the United States. That's a tension that's still very much there, and I talk about it in the book um, when I talk about uh, the 2008 and 2012 presidential campaigns of Mitt Romney, right, who faced a lot of um, insinuations and uh, kind of implicit attacks from Mike Huckabee, um, who was an evangelical minister who was running against Mitt Romney. Um, and was also the former governor of Arkansas, um, Huckabee insinuated over and over and over again that Mormons were not Christian. Uh, Romney tried to counter this by using a lot of evangelical language on the, um, on the campaign trail. He spoke at Liberty University, which uh, is a school founded by Jerry Falwell, who led um, the religious right. Um, he referred to Jesus as his personal savior, um, which is not a term that Mormons often use, but is certainly one that evangelicals use. 
And so Romney really worked hard to try to overcome these distinctions by expressing in his language um, about his faith um, the kind of norms and rhetoric that evangelicals were comfortable with. Mm -hmm. Um, And it had, I think, uh, something of a success, but a somewhat mixed success. Mm -hmm. It's interesting because uh, if you compare Mitt Romney's run and with uh, Donald Trump's, um, some Mormons may scratch their heads that, uh, in you know, in terms of um, at least personal behavior and uh, and and values, uh, they would see Mitt Romney as closer to white evangelical values, and yet uh, Donald Trump yeah, yeah. Uh, got garnered more support. Um, although Mitt Romney, I think the Republicans did come together in the end and and support him, so that illustrates mm-hmm. it's I guess it's. It's not all politics, right? It, you would think that if it's purely political, let's—it's a wide tent. Let's—it's uh, sure. a big tent. Let's gather everybody, but the, but these tensions you know, and, and, remain. Yeah, well, you know, and, and what is I think interesting about about these um, two presidential candidates is that evangelicals do kind of splinter over both of them. Um, there are many evangelicals who do end up supporting Mitt Romney, who argue, but there are a kind of hardcore, um, hard shell holdout cadre who say I would never vote for a Mormon. And you see something very similar with Donald Trump, right? Well, as you know, the number of 80% gets turned out a lot, why about 80% of these white evangelicals do end up voting for Donald Trump. There is a fairly prominent and fairly a hardcore group who will say I will never vote for him. Um, So the community, of course, this white evangelical community um, that's behind the religious right is not entirely unified even in and of itself. There are even some disputes within that community about what a Christian should do and who a Christian really is, um, which I think, again, points to this broader argument in the book. Hmm. Uh, I want to talk briefly about the, the uh, over on the Democratic side. Um, I think you, you wrote uh, noted that Hillary Clinton, uh, she called herself a Methodist, not a Christian. That, that seemed to be maybe, I don't know, if she's uh, trying to gather in the uh, militant, not militant, but but um, very firm secularists uh, among the Democratic coalition. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, and I think um, in, in her, her language there, I think, reflects um, something I, I note in the book. Um, there is this uh, survey I cite um, done by a excuse me, well, who I would call a Christian uh, named Dave Kinneman, um, who works for something called the Barna Organization, which is a polling firm. And he found a lot of this data that I'm citing, that many um, people view Christians as being intolerant and anti-gay and anti-feminist and all, all that sort of thing. And, and in his survey report, Kinneman noted that even though he himself um, was a believer, um, he preferred the term Christ follower to the term Christian uh, because Christian was so has become so frighted um, with all this weight of social conservative politics, and and when you know when it's been observed, of course, many times that that Hillary Clinton would use the term Methodist, not Christian. That is what I thought of, right? Is that she she was trying to separate her form of the faith um, from um, all of this baggage um, that afflicts so many other people like Kinnaman. And I think um, Clinton is, is very much an example of, of one of those um, whom I speak of in the book, these kind of ecumenical Christians who start backing away from using the term in the public sphere, but who are still very much in, um, preoccupied and invested with the sort of values that they associate with it. 
these values of individual freedom, um, individual dignity, moral rectitude, all of these sorts of things. Uh, so, you know, we're back to Anne Rice, right? Um, she says she still believes in Jesus, but uh, the word Christian has taken on so much of this right, you know, this, this baggage that uh, she's not going to use it anymore. It, the, but you have a lot of people then who are still believing in Jesus, still believing in, in, uh, in at least parts of, the, uh, of those, uh, that belief system. Then how important does the word itself become? Mm. You know, um, what, one of the things that sociologists of religion have really been observing over the past um, 20, 30 years is this rise of of a group that people who call the nuns, that is N-O-N-E-S, right? People who say, I'm no religion in particular on surveys, who don't identify with these terms. And many of those people are, I think, part of a group that I, I talk about early in the book, a group of people whom I, who I call post-Protestants. That is, people who no longer profess to be a Protestant, who no longer identify with these traditions, but who are still kind of very marked with a lot of these ideas. Uh, many of those people are people who have left those faiths because they are distressed by the power um, that socially conservative politics have achieved over the term Christian, and uh, they don't want to be part of that. Uh, they don't want to be associated with it anymore. However, there are kind of ways of thinking um, still, I think, bear a lot of the marks of the version of religion that they don't profess anymore, even though they're no longer members of it. So if you, if you dig deeper into the polling data, you will find that many of these people who call themselves no, no religion in particular um, still believe in God. Um, they still have spiritual practices um, they may pray, for instance, or meditate or something like that. Um, and they still believe, um, the vast majority of them still believe that there are a sort of set of cultural and social values derived from spiritual teachings. Um, for many of them, they will be values of human equality, um, values of moral behavior, right? The kinds of things um, that I think emerged from the very beginnings of Protestantism in the United States, and that shape a lot of the ways we think about what is Christian about American democracy. Let's take another break. We'll come back with our final segment with Matthew Bowman. Uh, he is Associate Professor of History at Henderson State University, and uh, his new book is an interesting book, Christian, The Politics of a Word in America. It's uh, new out from Harvard University Press. Uh, when we come back, Matthew Bowman, I want to, um, I want to talk a little bit about your chapter two, creating Western civilization at Columbia University. It's interesting things you learn. Um, this was in part um, influenced, I guess, this the creation of this course, which became very influential by returning servicemen, I learned, uh, who uh, over in Germany were musing about uh, the effects of uh, of religion and religious definition on, on civilization uh, there in Germany. Um, so uh, more following this break. Programming on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our members and Cash Arts presenting New York Jazz Ensemble, The Hot Sardines, Brassy Horn Arrangements, Piano Melodies, and Vocals Reminiscent of New York Speakeasies, Parisian Cabarets, and New Orleans Jazz Halls. Wednesday, May 2nd at 7.30 p.m. Ticket information at cashearts.org. Hi, I'm Steve Williams, host of Jazz Time here on Utah Public Radio. I hope you'll join me Sunday evenings for a journey through the world of jazz music from ragtime to bop, 
From Havana to Logan, Utah, tune in for a bit of history, commentary, the occasional interview, and of course, all that jazz. Jazz Time, Sunday evenings at 6 o'clock on Utah Public Radio. I'm Stephen Dubner. On the next Freakonomics Radio, the Trump tax reform and what Democratic economists think of it. I mean, $3 trillion is a lot of money. Also, the costs and benefits of dragon babies. Since ancient times, Chinese people have believed that babies born in the mythical dragon year were destined for success. That's next time on Freakonomics Radio. Join us Thursday morning at 10 on Utah Public Radio. We're back with our final segment with Matthew Bowman. We're talking about his new book, Christian, The Politics of a Word in America. Matthew Bowman is Associate Professor of History at Henderson State University. Uh, so as I referenced before the break, Matthew Bowman, uh, I'd like to have you talk a little bit about uh, your chapter two, Creating Western Civilization at Columbia University. I was very interested to, to, to learn how that uh, came about. Yeah, and uh, of course the, the term Western Civilization had been around um, before the period I talked about, which is really the period of World War One and the 1920s. Um, but it is in this period, I think, that this idea of Western civilization kind of uh, achieves a sort of final state. Um, and what happens at Columbia is important because the course that emerges from Columbia University becomes what college students all over the, um, America will know as Western Civ, um, a Western civilization course that until fairly recently was kind of ubiquitous. I certainly took it when I was in college. Um, it's increasingly being replaced by wor- world civilization courses, but nonetheless, I think its imprint is still very, very powerful. And as you mentioned uh, before the break, uh, this course derives from the experience of World War I. Um, during the war, the Wilson administration of uh, President Woodrow Wilson and his uh, staff believed that it was important to educate Americans about what this war was for. Wilson didn't want Americans to think uh, that this war was simply a kind of grab for influence or money or territory on the part of the United States. He wanted Americans to believe that the United States was fighting in this war for higher values. And Wilson was a very devout Christian himself. He was a Presbyterian. He had considered the ministry as a career. And he personally, and the courses that kind of come out of this campaign, bore some similarities. Um, at Columbia University, the course that emerges from all of this discussion is eventually called Contemporary Civilization, and it is still required um, at Columbia University today. It becomes a foundational course, part of the universal undergraduate curriculum. And what it does is it links several notions. It links the rise of Protestant Christianity to the rise of democratic politics, And it does so because, the Course maintains, Protestantism brought to the world this sense of individual liberty um, and the sense that this liberty must be maintained by moral behavior and by the cultivation of virtue. Um, The Course is somewhat, in its curriculum, it is somewhat skeptical about the future of democracy, which is understandable because it emerges from this great kind of cataclysmic war, and it warns students, like, look, if democracy is going to be preserved, 
um, if we are going to have a democratic society in the United States in the future, we have to abide by these values. We have to maintain the sense um, that freedom comes out of this Christian heritage. And the structure of the course is, again, what I think that many people who have taken a Western civilization course will recognize. Um, it begins, it roots human history, ultimately in the Middle East, um, and then it moves steadily north and west. It studies Greece, it studies Rome, um, then it moves to France and um, Germany and the United um, and England, and then ultimately to the United States, right? And that is the kind of pattern of Western civilization courses that follow. And the ideas, I think, this implicit linking of the Reformation with freedom, of Protestantism, with democracy, um, really persists, even in versions of this course that were taught at secular universities um, over the course of the 20th century. So I think this kind of period is really useful for kind of um, thinking about this link between religion and civilization and Christianity and democracy that becomes so important to American Christians, and particularly, as we've seen, as we've discussed, to this movement called the religious right. We just have a few minutes left in the conversation. Uh, I wonder if I get you to look to the future. Um, you've, we started with, uh, with Anne Rice and a kind of a narrowing or co-opting of definition of the word Christian. But uh, as you pointed out, we've discussed through the hour here, uh, that ebbs and flows. There, there are many there are concurrent ideas. Uh, it's much wider than maybe the current moment uh, would make it seem. What, uh, what, are the, what are the sub-issues that you're looking at most when you look to the future? Oh, you know, um, there's been a lot of talk recently, and particularly, I think, in the aftermath of the 2016 election, about what's going to happen to this movement um, called the religious right, what's going to happen to these group of people. Um, and there have been, since the 1990s, I think, predictions um, that this group will fall apart. And certainly as a kind of formal political lobbying organization, the religious right has has come and gone. Jerry Falwell's organization, the moral majority, has fallen part. Um, the one that followed out, the Christian Coalition, has also. But the group of people who voted um, for it has really persisted. There are, though, I think, signs that it is cracking up somewhat. Um, certainly, we've mentioned before in the hour, the, um, the Trump campaign proved incredibly divisive and remains incredibly divisive in this white evangelical community. Uh, there are many supporters certainly in the community, but there's also many vocal opponents. And there are some who are thinking that perhaps this is an indication that we have been too involved in electoral politics um, to begin with. And there are also, I think, among younger evangelicals, whole different sets of issues that are becoming important to them. Jerry Falwell in the 70s and 80s was very much mobilized by the feminist movement. Um, he was mobilized by abortion and by gay marriage. Um, younger evangelicals, though, are finding those issues less and less compelling. Um, there is a burgeoning white evangelical environmental movement, uh, for instance, uh, called the stewardship movement. And many younger evangelicals are increasingly interested in economic issues um, as well. So I think we're going to see simply more diversity. Um, we're going to see, as I argue for the book, um, all the way that uh, Christian is not a term that can be confined to any single definition. It's a term, instead, that lends energy and ideas to a multiplicity of political movements. Just a couple of minutes left. Uh, I'd like to uh, treat briefly a couple of uh, 
articles that really jumped out at me. This is from MatthewBowman.net. And uh, you may not have reviewed these articles uh, <laughs> recently, so <laughs> I'll just do the best we can. Um, but uh, very, very interesting, those who follow Mormonism. Uh, the first one uh, is uh, uh, Slate. And the title of it is What the Book of Mormon, the Musical, and Angels in America Get Wrong About Mormonism. And you write, uh, all of these pop, pop culture references uh, capture part of what it may mean to be a Mormon in America today, but none quite grasp the multifaceted ways in which Mormons currently define themselves and the strength with which their religion still creates for them a profoundly radical world. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, and, and uh, boy, yeah, I wrote this many years ago. Y- yes. But, uh, but I think, you know, this you can see in, in my thinking here on um, some of the ways um, that I think about religion generally, uh, that, that emerge in, in this current book as well, right? The argument there is that uh, there's as many Mormonisms, really, as there are Mormons. Um, and when people talk about Mormonism as a single monolithic movement, either in the present or the past, I think, frankly, they're, they're simply incorrect. Um, one of the things I think about the Book of Mormon musical, um, which I believe recently did go through Utah, um, is that it presents Mormonism as being something that's so quintessentially American that it's absurd, um, that Mormons are so kind of embedded in this kind of idealized, even imagined world of an America with white picket fences and children on bikes and all of that, um, that they are uh, naive. On the other hand, Angels in America, this uh, very kind of compelling and visionary play um, by uh, the Jewish playwright Tony Kushner, he uses Mormonism as a way of thinking about how transformative Americans can be, about uh, um, the possibilities of Americans kind of breaking out of the stifling world of conventional expectations and instead um, embracing radical personal and social transformation. Uh, right? And so I'm setting those, these two depictions of Mormonism side by side. Um, these these uh, two productions present almost very, very distinct versions of Mormonism, nonetheless, which both, I think, have um, some fact in them. Both are rooted, in some sense, in aspects of the Mormon tradition. Uh, And lastly, this jumped out at me, and I've wondered this myself. Um, This is Washington Post 2015. Everybody loves Star Wars, but here's why Mormons especially love Star Wars. And you you say briefly here that uh, looking closely, it appears that Mormon identification with Star Wars is only one manifestation of a deeper Mormon fascination with the genres of science fiction and fantasy. Yeah, and and that's really true, I think. Um, It's been noted by a bunch of different people. Um, that Mormonism generates a kind of astonishing number of uh, fantasy writers, of science fiction writers, um, of course, uh, names like Orson Scott Card, Stephanie Meyer, who produced the Twilight books, is a Mormon, um, all the way to someone like Glenn Nelson, who created Battlestar Galactica. Right? And, and why is it and the, the, there's this kind of Mormon fascination with these other worlds? And I think that also is really rooted in the faith's um, origins in a, in a really kind of utopian, socially transformative, radical um, imagination itself, right? Early Mormonism, 19th century Mormonism, um, both in, in the East and then in Utah, tried very hard to found a really, really, really distinctive society that separated itself um, from the world around it in really profound ways. 
Um, and I think that kind of legacy really lives on in the imaginations of these kinds of Mormons who are doing the same thing in their fictional works. Well, we've reached the end of our time of fascinating discussion uh, all the way through. Thank you, Matthew Bowman. Matthew Bowman is Associate Professor of History at Henderson State University, author previously of The Mormon People, The Making of an American Faith. He's also author of The Urban Pulpit, New York City and the Fate of Liberal Evangelicalism. And the most recent book we spent most of the hour on, Christian, The Politics of a Word, in America. That's out now from Harvard University Press. Matthew Bowman, a pleasure. Thank you so much. Thank you. The intoxicating melodies of Breton music this week on the Thistle and Shamrock. Like the most resilient musical traditions, there's a lot of activity around the music of Brittany, with tradition often a starting point in a journey towards new music. I'm Fiona Ritchie. Journey with me to the heart of this magical tradition. Join us Friday night at 9 on Utah Public Radio. Hey, I'm Tom Power. You might know him as Doogie Howser or Barney Stinson or Count Olaf. Even though Neil Patrick Harris is only 44, he's been acting professionally for over 30 years. You'll hear Neil in a rare interview where he sort of realizes what's kept him going. It's coming up on Q from PRI, Public Radio International. Join us this afternoon at 1 on Utah Public Radio. A service of the College of Humanities and Social Sciences at Utah State University, this is Utah Public Radio. Heard statewide on KUSR, Logan, KUSK, Vernal, KUSL, Richfield, KUST, Moab, KCEU, Price, and KUSU-FM, Logan. 